To binge all episodes of The Killing Month, August 1978, join Wondery Plus and enjoy ad-free listening to over 40,000 episodes, early access to your favorite podcasts, and more. Find Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This podcast contains graphic descriptions of violence and human remains. Listener discretion is advised. This was not a family of love. This was a family of crime. I mean, a family that steals together sticks together. Not snitching meant everything. So in their Ten Commandments, there was only one, and that is you don't rat us out or we'll kill you. We all hang together or else we'll hang you out to dry. There was one rule. Yeah, don't snitch. You could do anything you wanted. You could rape your son's girlfriend. You could beat your wife. But what you didn't do was to rat on the family. But ratting is exactly what happened. By early August 1978, Bruce Johnston Jr. had turned on his dad, Bruce Sr. It happened after little Bruce's girlfriend, Robin Miller, told him that she had been raped by Bruce Sr. When he turned, Jr. also gave investigators the names of his young associates in the Kitty Gang, the younger, less experienced arm of the Johnston Gang. Junior explained to investigators how he and his friends had been stealing smaller tractors for the gang for about a year. They didn't get paid a lot, about $100 to $150 a job, but it was more money than any of them had ever seen. Investigators started bringing in the young gang members to question them and to convince them they needed to testify in front of the federal grand jury in order to save themselves something 19-year-old Bruce Jr. had already done. 18-year-old Jimmy Johnston was Jr.'s half-brother. The boys shared a mother, Jenny, Bruce Sr.'s first wife. And while Jimmy Johnston was unrelated to Sr. by blood, he was technically Sr.'s stepson. On August 15th, Jimmy Johnston came to the Avondale State Police Barracks along with other Kitty Gang members, 20-year-old Wayne Sampson, and 18-year-old Dwayne Lincoln. The officers pooled their money and bought the kids cold cuts and bread to make them sandwiches because they knew they were hungry and thought this might make them more comfortable. A defendant in another case who admitted to being a longtime gangster did a, quote, scared straight routine with the kids, regaling them with the horrors of what the kitty gang could expect if they went to prison. And it worked. The Kitty Gang agreed to cooperate. They were about to go before the grand jury, and we knew very well that if that happened, the House of Cards may well come down on the gang. But Jimmy Johnston, Wayne Sampson, and Dwayne Lincoln didn't appear before that grand jury. Because a day after this meeting, the three kids disappeared. For two weeks after the kitty gang vanished, investigators didn't know what to think. They searched motels, hoping to find the kids holed up somewhere. 
Perhaps they were just having cold feet about testifying. But the kids were nowhere to be found. Then the ambush on August 30th, 1978 happened when Bruce Jr. was targeted for execution and his girlfriend, Robin Miller, was murdered. That's when investigators had no choice but to realize what was happening to the young men associated with the Johnston gang. That's when it all became very clear. The members of the Kitty gang weren't just missing. They were dead. And investigators needed to find their bodies to try to put the Johnsons away for good. I'm Amanda Lamb. From WREL Studios, this is The Killing Month, August 1978. The story of a family crime empire that came crumbling down when the bodies started piling up. Journalist Julia Cass covered the Johnston gang for several years for the Philadelphia Inquirer. She says the single mothers, grandmothers, and aunts of the Kitty Gang didn't stand much of a chance of keeping their boys out of trouble. All these women lived in very small, either trailers or sad little apartments with not much furniture, no pictures on the wall. Little Bruce's mother and grandmother, they really loved those boys and took care of them as best they could, but they were working. They worked in panning factories and all that, and they just didn't have time to keep track of their boys, and they didn't have that much to offer them. Julia says that Bruce Sr. was in jail off and on from a young age, and that Junior never really met his father early on. But as he got older, he heard about him. Some people really admired the Johnstons, in part because they had all these, you know, Corvettes and fast cars and money, and they'd go to order Dom Perignon. They were living a flashier life than most people were, especially people of their social class in Chester County at that time. So Junior knew about his father. He knew the lifestyle his dad was living. He was ready to join the family business. So do you think it was kind of a combination of wanting a father in his life, but then also, you know, wanting the things, the material things that came along with that? I think it was both of them. I think he did want to have, he wanted, and part of the reason he wanted a relationship too, but he wanted to be part of something cool, you know, and seemingly admirable. And, you know, I think he definitely also wanted a relationship and maybe he wanted to do these little tractor thefts because he thought that would deepen the relationship if he got involved with his father in committing crimes. Did you think Bruce Sr. had any love for his son or do you think he just thought of him as another person that could help further his crime empire? I I don't, I, you know, that's a good question, and I don't really have an answer to that. I know that the other brothers, especially David, did not like them having anything to do with Bruce Jr. or the other boys. Why Bruce Sr. went along with this, I think he wanted some kind of relationship with his son, or, or at least, the very least, he didn't want to turn his son away. 
Junior had wanted a car, and Senior bought him a 1971 Firebird, which Junior promptly ran into a pole and wrecked. A Time Magazine article from January 1979 says friends suggested that Senior had second thoughts about Junior's criminal abilities and urged him to, quote, look for a nine-to-five job, end quote. Eventually, though, Senior agreed to take his son under his wing, and the other boys in the kitty gang got involved, too. Those boys who were raised by those single moms, grandmas, and aunts. I can still picture them now in their sad apartments, just looking down and feeling resigned and, you know, just hoping for the best, but not really knowing how to take any action to make things change. Some of the investigators see the way the two generations came together in the crime world a little bit differently. One former investigator said that Senior would drive up in a new pickup truck or car, and the kiddies were told if they learned to be good burglars, they could have nice things too. According to former state police detective Tom Cloud, Junior got his marching orders from his dad, and the other members of the kitty gang fell in line behind him. They mostly did small-time jobs together, or along with Bruce Sr., stealing tractors. They had a cottage industry of getting these individual tractors, which are so easy to take because they're out in the shed. You pop them out of gear, you roll them up onto the back of a pickup truck, and you give the kids 100 bucks, and you sell them for seven or $800, and you, know, you don't need to be much of a mathematician to figure out that that's a nice sideline. Tom Cloud was a local boy. He knew the adult members of the Johnston gang way before he started arresting them. They were in the same school district he was in when he was growing up. Tom always felt like it was a case of there but for the grace of God go I. He had been raised in a family that valued hard work and integrity. He knew that the members of the Kitty Gang, well, they had had hard lives. So he felt for them. He wanted to help them get on a better path. All those kids were just kids. They, re- they really were. If, you know, they were looking for something to get into every night, you know what I mean, hanging around. They messed with pills and drugs, too, you know. And, and what ends up happening is if you get that kind of an addiction, then you have to pay for it. Whether these were innocent kids roped into a life of crime or they actively sought out the excitement, prestige, and payoff, the possibility of bodily harm coming to the kitty gang for their involvement in relatively minor crimes, it wasn't only unconscionable, it was just beyond understanding. To tell you the truth, I didn't think it would happen. I didn't think it would happen. I thought they'd get threatened. I thought they'd be paid money to not testify. I thought, you know, there'd be all kinds of shenanigans. But to go to this level, to bury three kids, teenagers, that all they knew was about stealing some lawn tractors. But then again, these were the Johnstons, And the investigators were about to find out what the Johnston gang was capable of.
At WakeMed MyCare 365, we deliver convenience others only talk about every day of the year. Primary care and urgent care under one roof. Multiple locations, virtual visits, walk-in or schedule an appointment online. From annual physicals and routine care to sinus infection, strep, or the flu, we couldn't be more convenient. Learn more about our kind of care and our kind of convenience at wakemed.org. More great news for Cary commuters. With the new GoCarry app, you can track your bus live on the interactive map feature. Stay informed with the latest news and service updates right at your fingertips. Save your favorite locations and routes for quick and easy access, making your daily commute a breeze. Plus, with the GoCarry app, you can easily connect to GoCarry.org for even more resources and information. Best of all, the GoCarry app is absolutely free to download on the Apple and Google Play stores. GoCarry, where getting there is just a tap away. Sarah Martin had raised Jimmy Johnston, her grandnephew and Bruce Johnston's senior stepson, since Jimmy was a baby. To her, Jimmy was simply her son. To Jimmy, she was mom. She had not seen or heard from Jimmy since August 15th. That day, they had chatted in the yard in front of the family's trailer. She told him to be careful. Two days later, when he hadn't come home, Sarah called Bruce Sr. to ask if he knew where Jimmy was. She said she wanted to make sure Jimmy had enough to eat. Sarah says Sr. told her, quote, Jimmy's got friends, and where he is, he won't be hungry. In her heart, Sarah and the rest of the family were pretty sure Bruce Sr. had done something to Jimmy. In late September, about six weeks after she last saw Jimmy, Sarah went to a restaurant known to locals as the Oxford Diner. It's your typical 1950s diner, a low metal building with a blue and pink neon sign advertising air conditioning out front. Inside, there's a metal lunch counter lined with swivel stools covered in red leather. And then across a narrow aisle is a row of booths with the same red leather adorning the plush, high-backed seats. It's a small place, a place where it would be hard to avoid someone. Sarah was eating when she saw Bruce Sr. come in. They didn't speak, but their eyes locked. He seemed smug to her. He swaggered over to the jukebox and sent her a message without saying a word. He didn't say anything to her. He just went to the jukebox, put his quarter in, and played the song Only the Good Die Young and walked out. The fall of 1978 was a busy time for investigators trying to connect the Johnston gang to the murder of Robin Miller, the attempted murder of Bruce Johnston Jr., and what they believed must be the murders of other members of the Kitty Gang. The investigators hardly saw their families. They were working around the clock, gathering evidence against the gang members who had eluded any serious convictions for years. Here's what they did have. Remember the story of Shannon from Episode 3? As a young girl, she lost her father, Gary Crouch. He was murdered. Gang member and snitch, Leslie Dale, 
had already led investigators to Crouch's body. But Leslie also told them at the time that there were more bodies. He said he wasn't there when the others were killed, but he knew about it. Even more importantly, he knew another gang member who was there and who might talk if he got a deal. So, investigators turned their attention to turning a man by the name of Ricky Mitchell into their next snitch. Ricky was already well-known to law enforcement in the area. He was also well-known for being odd. Former state police detective Tom Cloud recalls one time when he saw Ricky in what he believed was a stolen vehicle. So Tom ran the tags. And it was a stolen car, so I arrested him. And I had him at the barracks, and I get called down to the front desk. His mother and father were at the front desk, and they had a strawberry milkshake for him. He was probably 35, 40 years old at the time. Everyone, and I mean everyone we interviewed for this podcast who met Ricky Mitchell, used words to describe him like strange, weird, off. Ricky was so strange. Journalist Julia Cass. Looked strange. He was sort of a little bit misshapen. He apparently had been in a lot of car crashes and he had epilepsy and he was unnaturally white. You know, his his skin looked like dough almost. And he spoke very slowly and deliberately. Julia described Ricky in one of her cover stories as having, quote, slurred speech and multiple physical problems arising from numerous auto accidents. He was scatterbrained, but he was definitely the kind of person that could be told to do anything, you know, I think by the Johnsons, and he would. And that was the key in this, that they used him. For, you know, if there was something that they needed done, that there was a great danger of getting caught or something of that sort, they would have him do it. Because of his odd behavior and appearance, Ricky wasn't a guy that was likely to be accepted by most people. But the gang relied on him, and he religiously followed their orders. And Tom Cloud believes being part of the gang gave Ricky a sense of belonging. And something else. I believe in a sick sort of way, anything he did, he was proud of, which is a little sickening, but I think he was proud of it. In December 1978, Ricky was in jail on a probation violation at the Delaware County Prison. For weeks, investigators had tried to get him to talk after Leslie Dale told them Ricky was the one who knew exactly what happened to the kitty gang. He knows that they killed multiple people for knowing about relatively minor thefts and burglaries. He knows about the killing of the witnesses. So is it hard to suggest or for him to take the quantum leap that maybe he would be on the list? Still, Ricky wasn't talking. Even after investigators told him that Leslie said There was a contract out on Ricky's life. You know, all of the people who worked with the Johnsons were reluctant to testify against them. 
it was a, a little bit of a friendship thing, but it was more of a fear thing. I think every single one of them knew that that was a possibility if they testified against him. And the Johnstons let them know that. They were very clear about what they did to snitches. So Ricky still wasn't talking. But then Ricky heard that Norman Johnston's wife, Susan, had been calling the prison, trying to find out what cell Ricky was assigned to. When he heard that, it finally put Ricky over the edge and convinced him to talk. You know, Ricky was probably living under the illusion that he was somehow different until he heard about the the visit to the jail and inquiring about what cell he was in. And then he realized that he had to talk to the cops because otherwise he was a dead man. Ricky's attorney called then Assistant District Attorney Dolores Troiani and said Ricky might be ready to make a deal, that he had lots of juicy information to trade about the Johnstons. At first, when Ricky started talking, he told a bunch of inconsistent stories. He said he knew what happened to the Kitty Gang because he was there. He said he had killed the Kitty Gang himself. Then he said he was there, but he didn't kill anyone. It was hard to know what to believe when talking to Ricky. But one piece of his story contained information police had long suspected was true. It's something that Leslie Dale had already told them. But unlike Leslie, Ricky Mitchell had firsthand knowledge that David and Norman Johnston were the ones who shot Junior and Robin. He knew this because he had helped them plan it. Remember, Junior said there were two shooters that night, but that he couldn't identify them. Now, with Ricky's statement that David and Norman were there, the case against the Johnstons was closing in. On December 30th, 1978, after lots of back and forth negotiations, Ricky finally told investigators he'd proved to them that he was there when the Kitty Gang was killed by showing them exactly where the bodies were buried. Quick calls were made, and detectives and members of the prosecution team piled into police cars and headed to a remote piece of land at the Brandywine Game Preserve, a place known as a local hunting spot. Most of the team waited at the bottom of a hill at the preserve, while state police detective Tom Cloud and Chester County detective Larry Dantman trekked up the hill with Ricky. I visited the spot with Tom in October 2022. He took me up the same path through the woods that he and Ricky had walked 40-plus years prior. The leaves had already changed to amber and golden hues that framed the rolling green hills of the preserve like something out of a painting. I couldn't help but think that I was making this solemn journey just a few days before Halloween, a time when dozens of locals often traveled here just to drive by and rubberneck, to bask in the gruesome lore surrounding this area. As we climbed through tangles of pricker bushes and brambles, I mused that the setting couldn't be more fitting for a scene 
in a horror movie. And this is the location where the bodies were buried. Yeah, this patch of woods right here was very well developed even 44 years ago, but the briar rim around the outside of this patch of woods is a lot thicker and heavier than it was back then. Tom told me in those woods that when Ricky came to this spot with him decades earlier, he looked up as though he was looking for things to help him remember. But it was December, and the leaves on the trees were gone. The trees would have been full of leaves in August when the kitty gang was killed. For Tom, this was all so strange. He couldn't figure out what in the world Ricky was looking for up in the sky. Like pretty much everything with Ricky, things just seemed off. Finally, Ricky looked toward the ground. And he said, right here, and I said, are you sure? And his exact words, no, I'm positive. And as much scrutiny as we gave to Ricky and as much difficulty we had, you know, interacting with him, when we dug, we hit the first boy's thigh. But the digging would not be quick. Once Ricky told Tom where to dig, Tom called the team at the bottom of the hill on his police radio and told them to come up. Everyone knew it was going to be a long night. The temperature dropped quickly, so they made a fire to keep everyone warm. Larry Dampman is one of the Chester County detectives who was up there with Tom. Started raining, started getting dark, we were losing daylight. Investigators measured the spot where Ricky told them to dig. It was nine feet, six inches long and five feet, two inches wide. Portable lights were brought in so they could see where they were digging. It was tedious work for Tom Cloud and Larry Dampman as the others warmed themselves by the fire and watched the officers go deeper and deeper into the hole, scooping out tiny piles of frozen dirt. Finally, first thing we hit with the shovel was a, a blue denim Wrangler type pants. And we got some uh, big uh, ladles, spoon ladles. You heard that right. They had to abandon the big equipment and dig very carefully with ladles and spoons. Just like a, you know, archaeologist or something, just very carefully finding the three bodies, and I think there was nothing to recognize about them except their clothing was still there. The top body had a Tweety Bird shirt on it. And, you know, we had interviewed people, and we knew that Wayne Sampson was wearing a Tweety Bird shirt. Yeah, you know what Tom is talking about here. The cartoon bird. That's the shirt Wayne Sampson was wearing the day he was killed. But seeing that innocent image on the body of a dead young man was far from the worst thing they would see that night. There was still flesh, particularly the, uh, the jeans that they were wearing. I guess per, there was more flesh on the like thighs and legs and stuff than there was the rest. I was surprised at how decomposed they were. 
And when the smell hit him, it was like something Tom had never experienced before. One by one, the bodies of the kitty gang were pulled out of the mass grave and put into body bags to be transported to the hospital for autopsies. As professional as he was about doing his job that night, for Tom, this was personal. Reporter Julia Cass wrote about what Tom saw. He stared at them long and hard to see whether he could recognize the three delinquent boys he'd arrested so many times for petty thefts and had talked to so often about straightening up. But their faces were gone. All that was left was their long, stringy hair. What I remember, and this was just from my interview with the policeman, was how horrified they were about about the whole thing. I mean, because some of them, because these were boys with uh, juvenile records, the state policeman knew them and didn't consider them evil kids or anything. They were just, you know, lost boys, basically. Young, delinquent boys grew up fatherless and in relative poverty and wanted to be part of something big. Uh, uh, Very misguided and very lost, in my view. At this point, the bodies had been located and dug up. And Ricky had proven to investigators that based on all the details he knew, he was there when the kids were killed. And Ricky also eventually told them the truth about how the kitty gang was killed in August 1978 and who did it. That's coming up. The night of December 30th, 1978, Bruce Mowdy, then a reporter at the Daily Local News, found out something major was happening at the Brandywine Game Preserve. He'd been told three bodies had been dug up. He went out there, and the cops wouldn't let him get anywhere close to the action. But the next day... Early in the afternoon, I get a phone call from one of the investigators. He was a Penn State fan and drinking too much and called to, I think his wife was giving him a hard time because I hadn't mentioned him as one of the lead investigators and he was doing a lot of the work. And he said, you think you know so much. You don't even know who led us to the bodies. And I assumed, as did every other reporter next day in the newspaper, was Leslie Dale. He said, Leslie Dale. He said, no, he wasn't. It was Ricky Mitchell. When I went in the next morning to write the story, I told everybody what was going on. It's Ricky Mitchell. And I remember our publisher coming over. And he's standing in front of me saying, are you sure? Everybody else is reporting it's Leslie Dale. I said, nope, I'm sure it's Ricky Mitchell. With the help of his sources, Bruce Mowdy was able to put the pieces together to understand what led up to the murders of the Kitty Gang. Here's what he learned. The three young men, Wayne Sampson, Dwayne Lincoln, and Bruce Sr.'s stepson, Jimmy Johnston, were getting ready to testify in front of the grand jury. They were given subpoenas and given some very crucial advice by investigators. 
The last thing they told Jimmy Johnson was, don't tell your dad about this. You're going to be in real serious harm if you do. You know, you're, you're scheduled to testify the next week. Just come in, but keep it quiet. And that was a weekend that the Oxford Fire Company was having their big fair. And that used to be the big social event in Oxford. And Jimmy Johnson was there and saw his dad and said, Dad, look what I have, a subpoena. That was August 15, 1978, the day before Jimmy Johnston was supposed to appear before a federal grand jury and testify against his stepfather and uncles. For the gang, the situation had progressed from a slow boil to a full-blown crisis. The water was bubbling out of the pot, and something needed to be done immediately. The details of what happened next are from reporting by both Julia Cass and Bruce Mowdy, which they based on Ricky Mitchell and Leslie Dale's accounts. Bruce Sr. went back to the fair and ordered his stepson Jimmy into the car at the fireman's carnival and told him he was going to hide him to keep him from having to testify the next day. Jimmy was crying. According to witnesses... He told his friends, quote, I'll either be in a motel or six feet underground. Senior then drove with Jimmy to gang member Leslie Dale's house. Senior banged on Leslie's door and told him he needed him to keep Jimmy for the night. The three of them drove to the O'Shaw Motel in Lancaster County, where Bruce checked them in with a $100 bill. Leslie had a bad feeling about the situation, that something horrible was about to happen to this kid. He bought him cheeseburgers and fries that night and told him to go to his girlfriend's house, where Leslie thought he would be safer. But Jimmy refused, saying his dad had told him not to leave the motel. Leslie watched Sr. give his stepson $15 that night, Senior later told Leslie that he had gotten the $15 back, plus two more dollars that he took from his dead stepson's pocket after the shooting. Mitchell told investigators that on August 16th, he met with all three brothers at their mother Louise's house in Kennett Square. Senior told him he needed him to dig a hole for them and that in return, he would pay to get Ricky's car fixed. Ricky agreed and he went with Norman and David in another gang member's car, James Griffin, who you'll hear from later. They went to a store called Gothrop's and purchased two shovels and a bag of lime. David and Norman took Ricky to the Brandywine Game Preserve and showed Ricky where to dig. Ricky remembered it being so hot that day that he had an epileptic seizure while digging the hole. Eventually, Norman came back with some beer, they drank it, and Ricky finally finished the job. David then picked them up in his Thunderbird 
and Ricky was told to return to Louise's house later that night. Arriving back at Louise's house in the evening, Ricky said Jimmy Johnston was already there. Ricky sat with Jimmy and Louise and watched TV. Eventually, Bruce Sr., Norman, and David showed up. They told Jimmy there was a stolen tractor hidden in the woods that was stuck in the mud, and they needed three guys to help get it unstuck. Meanwhile, they pulled Ricky aside and told him the real deal. They were going to kill the kitty gang and put them in the four-foot-deep hole that Ricky had dug. Later that night, Kitty Gang members, Dwayne Lincoln and Wayne Sampson, wearing his Tweety Bird shirt, were also brought to Louise's house and told the same story about the stuck tractor. All the boys were given quaaludes before the shootings to take the edge off, which made them like zombies. The gang drove out to the game preserve with the boys. Bruce Mowdy and Tom Cloud retell what went down that night based on Ricky Mitchell's account. And that night they told the three guys that we had this big tractor stuck and we need help pushing it out so we can steal it. And they took them up one by one. The first one was uh, Jimmy Johnson. So Jimmy went up and Bruce, when he got near the hole, Ricky said Sr. then shined his flashlight in his stepson's eyes and shot him twice in the head. One of the most chilling details, Ricky said Jimmy Johnston was gurgling, still breathing when he fell into the hand-dug grave after getting shot by the man he called Dad. One by one, the other two boys were marched up the hill. So they get Dwayne Lincoln to come up, and he comes up, and Ricky tells me that David said, this one's mine. Senior shines a light in Dwayne's eyes. David shoots him once in the head, and Dwayne tries to speak. David then shoots him again, killing him. Tom Cloud told me David had a personal grudge against Dwayne. It stemmed back to the fact that Tom had put Dwayne's name in a probable cause warrant relating to a tractor theft by the Johnstons. In the warrant, he said that Dwayne had admitted to stealing a tractor for the gang and had been paid by David. Tom Cloud still sometimes thinks about the fact that he had named Dwayne Lincoln and that probable cause warrant, that he was responsible for labeling the boy a snitch to the Johnston gang, that he put Dwayne on David Johnston's radar. As Philadelphia Inquirer reporter Julia Cass so beautifully wrote about Tom in 1981, quote, that deeply upset the religious cop. He hasn't stopped thinking about the talks he had with the long-haired teenager while taking him to a juvenile detention center. And he hasn't stopped wishing he could reach back in time and erase the boy's name from the warrant. Sadly, I, I know, I didn't know it at the time, I found out later, a distant relative of 
Dwayne Lincoln's is actually a friend of mine. So it was the wife of a friend of mine. But, but I mean, it was just something that just kind of haunted you in a well, way. Well, sure it does. Sure, that, that hits you once in a while, for sure. A lot of this stuff does. I mean, a lot of this stuff, it's, it's pretty rare now, but sometimes I'll be watching something that'll, that'll almost hit me like a ton of bricks. But, uh, you know, you get through it. Yeah, I'm... Uh, how how often do you think about it? How often do you think about the Johnsons? I mean, is oh, it just every once in a while? A lot. A lot. Even though it's been decades, it doesn't take much to bring Tom right back to the day he found three boys dead in the woods, buried in a mass grave, and to when he found out how those boys got there marched to their deaths, one by one, up that hill. Then they go back and tell the last one, Wayne, Tweety Bird, that they need his help up there. And Ricky was, according to him, was told, you got to do this one. This was the Johnston's way, making everyone culpable to make sure no one would snitch. David told Ricky to get with the program because it would be good for his health, implying that he would be killed if he didn't do as they ordered. Senior reloaded the gun and handed it to Ricky. Ricky told him he didn't want to do it, but he felt like he didn't have a choice. It was kill or be killed. But when Senior tried to shine the light in Wayne's eyes, as he had with the first two boys, he accidentally shined the light in Ricky's eyes instead, momentarily blinding him as he shot at Wayne. The detail that got me the most was that the boy that Ricky Mitchell shot, I guess the light got shined in Ricky Mitchell's face, so he, he missed it first. And the, the boy said, is that a real gun? Oh, to me, that was just heartbreaking. Ricky didn't answer. He then shot Wayne twice in the head. Julia remembers the mothers of all these boys, and she thinks about how naive the boys must have been to be told... They were going to help the gang, help those men they so admired. They were so willing to walk up that hill, one by one, to their deaths. And Ricky didn't even know the boys by name. When he relayed the information to authorities, he called them boys A, B, and C for the order in which they were killed. And Ricky said it didn't end with just three bodies. There was someone else affiliated with the Kitty Gang that the Johnstons wanted dead, James Sampson. 24-year-old James Sampson, Wayne Sampson's older brother, had also received a subpoena from the federal grand jury. And the gang knew about it. And he was starting to ask questions about Wayne. 
James was concerned that his brother was missing, as were other family members, and the police were asking about it. And the Johnston brothers' story was, yeah, they were subpoenaed. They don't want to testify. They're fine. They're traveling. They sent us postcards. Don't worry about them. And Samson pretty much threatened uh, harm to the Johnston brothers. You better not have done anything to, to my brother. According to Ricky, James had told the Johnstons if they hurt his younger brother, he would go to the police. So just four days after the three boys were killed, the brothers once again gathered around Louise's kitchen table. Senior offered David, Norman, and Ricky $2,500 to kill James Sampson. On August 21st, Ricky told James they were going to burglarize a building near the Lanchester landfill and get a, quote, big haul. So they all headed to the landfill, and they split up to case the property. And then Norman called David on the walkie-talkie and told him and James to come to them because Ricky had had a seizure and they needed some help. This time... It was uh, Norman Johnston's turn to shoot somebody. They, they were taking turns so nobody could testify against each other. Ricky was instructed by the brothers when James got to their location to tell him he had lost his glasses near a bulldozer during an epileptic seizure and needed help finding them. Ricky was sure if he did not comply, they would kill him. The ruse worked and James Sampson got down on his hands and knees to help find Ricky's lost glasses. That's when Ricky said he heard a big bang and saw a red flash. Ricky got so scared, he pulled out his own gun and pointed it at Norman. Norman said, quote, don't you trust me? And handed Ricky the gun he had just used to shoot James with to prove that he was not going to turn it on Ricky. They buried James's body beneath trash in the landfill. It was never found. The owner of the landfill, Thomas Frame, later told investigators that a quarter million tons of garbage would have to be moved to locate the body. And there was a risk of releasing toxic gases in the process. James Sampson's Chevy Camaro was later found at the Philadelphia International Airport, where it had been parked for weeks since the day he was killed. The gang wanted to make it look like he had left town to avoid testifying in front of the grand jury. For some reason, this detail, that a man had been buried in a landfill, always stuck with me. I remember my parents talking about the case in hushed tones when I was an adolescent. I overheard this information and had nightmares about a man buried beneath tons of trash trying to claw his way out. The locations where the bodies were buried, the game preserve, with a hand-dug grave hidden deep in the forest, and the landfill, they both made an impression on everyone who heard the stories, and especially on those who saw the bodies, like my dad. Not to make it about me, but you did have an adolescent child getting ready to go into teen years at that point. I guess I would have been 1978. 
uh, I would have been 12. Right. So these could, you were at the age, they could be your kids. Absolutely. So what was that like to, to see those bodies one by one come out of the grave? Horrible. Just horrible that people could do this to other people. You know, in today's world, why it's nothing, but, um, uh, you know, just horrible. Even though investigators had been working around the clock since the ambush, something did change that day at the game preserve when Kitty gang members were found in that grave. Young lives, discarded like trash, buried like animals, piled on top of one another. When you start digging bodies up out of the ground, it creates a different level of investigation and, quite honestly, a different level of commitment. And uh, so there wasn't a couple of us out there trying to catch them. There was a team, and I mean a team that was statewide. Together, that team would become a formidable force. They would become the gang, trying to bring down the Johnston gang. I'm going to give you a heads up. These guys do get taken to trial, and we'll get to that in later episodes. Believe me when I tell you, the trials were as predictably unpredictable as the Johnstons themselves. But in the next episode, the personal story of a man who ran with the Johnstons, but who also wanted out of the crime life, a criminal who became a snitch. I'm not going to be a fugitive from the law all my life. I, I, I wasn't. Listen, I've only been a bad guy for 10 years, and I've been a good guy for 45 years. I wasn't going to live like that. One man's long journey to escape the Johnstons. It involved jumping out a window, entering witness protection, and a surprise wedding? That's next time. I'm Amanda Lamb. This is The Killing Month, August 1978.